Our scripture reading today is Isaiah chapter 6. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Please pray with me. Father, please quieten our hearts and focus our attention that we may receive your word with deep respect. Direct Kyle's teaching that we may be stirred on to love and good deeds, to the growth of your kingdom and to your greater honor. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing today? How are you feeling? I wonder who here has been to what they call in the South a buffet. I mean, they call them buffets up here. I just like the way they inflected in the South. Buffet, a buffet. I'll tell you future preachers what you don't do at the beginning of your sermon is you don't mention lunch. During seminary up here, I was always getting invited to a good buffet. 
cheap, all you can eat. I mean, what's not to love? Chinese food buffets, Indian food buffets. In fact, on Sundays, the on-campus dining hall was closed for business. Students were left to fend for themselves. And so off-campus buffets were the answer to lunch staff Sabbaths. It was our chance to get all fattened up. The righteous among us would probably come home from the buffets and go to the gym. I'll tell you about another kind of buffet that I experienced while I was a student at seminary, and that was the seminary. Picture this, you get three years to fill up your plate with classes like Greek and Hebrew exegesis, hermeneutics, preaching, pastoral counseling, and more, gobble gobble. The psalmist talks about meditating on God's word, a word in Hebrew that, that, that means chewing, almost like a dog chews at a bone. There's no doubt that the Bible is a source of nourishment. I mean, what did Jesus say? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Three years to eat up all the Bible you can. Get fattened up and do it fast. Buffet closes at four. A lot of nourishment goes on. Uh, a lot of being filled to the brim with spiritual calories. When you're in seminary, hardly a day goes by without preparation work, getting ready to go out into the real world and live it out. And I'll be honest with you, it's easy in such an environment to get a little spiritually heavy set, or of, of ample proportions. I mean, how can I say it? Spiritually fat. It's easy to get spiritually fat. I wonder if you can relate. Coming up on a season like Lent, a season of the church that has historically been marked by the discipline of fasting, coming up on this season, we can feel the pace change. We've all grown a little comfortable at the buffet. We've all widened out, poked some new holes in our belts during the Easter banquet, the Christmas festivities. And without the disciplines, during special seasons of, of attentiveness, we do get a little spiritually fat, sluggish even. It's something that can dull the spiritual senses and make us drowsy. You know how you feel after Thanksgiving? Yeah, like that, just spiritually. Um, this is one of the criticisms leveled against Israel in our passage today. In verse 10, we read in our English Bibles, make the heart of this people calloused and make their ears dull and close their eyes. And what we see when we read the Hebrew text is an interesting Jewish idiom. Fadden up their hearts, it says. And it continues, lest they turn and be healed. So it's with irony that God says, go fadden up your hearts, otherwise you would repent and be healed. Go fadden up your hearts. And I wonder what that means, go fadden up your hearts. The heart in the Bible is the very center of your being. It's not simply an organ in your body. It's the seat of your will, the volition. It's the thing that says yes or no. It's like the rudder of a ship steering the course of your life. As humans, we have free will, which means we have the power to do both good and evil. So if the heart is getting fattened up, I imagine that it's in consumption mode, taking in a lot of calories, existing for itself. 
the will is oriented inwards, focused on filling itself with as if too much food. Um, a fat heart becomes comfortable, complacent, even proud. A fat heart doesn't need God because it bakes its own daily bread, and then some. Am I right? Why transact with the God who may only give you enough to get by? Instead, look out for yourself. It's a saying I, I heard growing up a lot. Um, God helps those who help themselves. A fat heart becomes comfortable, complacent, and even proud. Now I want to table this idea, pun intended, but first let's rewind a little bit. Um, I want to begin at the beginning of our passage as we go through it together. Um, today we're going to read about, or we're going to talk about what we have read, Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry, the message that God gives him, a message of judgment, and a message of remnant hope for the faithful. So as we move through this passage, I want you to consider one thing. Um, I want you to consider how Isaiah's encounter with God has a faithful or has a familiar rhythm to it. Uh, the progression, the movements, they look a lot like Sunday morning worship, the liturgy we use. So I want you to just notice that. Our passage begins with God giving Isaiah a vision. God summoning Isaiah before his throne. God setting the scene, beginning the dialogue. This is what theologians call a theophany. Two words meaning God and light. The appearance or manifestation of God, a visual encounter with God. Who on earth surpasses Moses and could stand to see more than just the back of God? I mean, picture this. God is enthroned like a king. He's sitting in the temple, and he's surrounded by a company of celestial beings. Verse 2 describes these beings as seraphim, literally burning ones. It's an adjective, uh, or it's a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a noun, but it's, it's describing them. Um, no creature like you've ever seen before. It's uh, almost like the burning bush. Always burning, yet never consumed. I mean, if God were not present, you might fall down and worship such beings. But these creatures are singing out. They're singing, holy, holy, holy. Now, what Isaiah, Isaiah sees with his eyes is an image of completeness. So three times we, we get this word in Hebrew, male, meaning fullness, abundance. In verse 1, the train of God's robe, it fills. Male, it fills this temp the temple. In verse 3, the seraphim sing, the whole earth is full of his glory. And in verse 4, the house was filled with smoke. God leaves no space absent from his presence. It's amazing what, God, what Isaiah sees with his eyes is the localized glory of God, the fullness of God within the temple. But what Isaiah hears with his ears from these angelic beings is the omnipotent or, or omnipresent everywhere glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, even in the Old Testament, God's transcendence and God's imminence, they're always held in balance. Um, we read in verse 4, At the sound of the seraphim's voices, the doorposts, the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. My two thoughts here, first, 
I mean, if an angel can shake the temple, what would happen if God sang? My second thought, wow, how incredibly terrifying to see the walls around you shake. I want to illustrate this with a video, uh, which I'm going to invite young, young children to close their eyes for if they're, if they're prone to getting scared. Now, I like a good prank. Sometimes pranks go too far. Um, some cro- like walk the line, and I think this walks the line. Um, there's a, I saw this prank on YouTube. I don't know if it's a prank. It takes place in the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. And there's a big LED screen that, that looks like a shark tank with a sign above it saying, touch at your own risk. So let's watch this and see what happens. Um, now, the video, it's a joke, but it serves to illustrate what it might feel like to be in a rattling cage, a structure that cannot contain the magnitude of the force within, the weight of God's glory, much like the force in this shark tank is an overwhelming, expansive force. I wonder if we would fall back like this man, if we were in God's temple. I wonder if you've ever uh, wondered what it feels like to be, uh, to encounter the holy God. Uh, if, we've, if we've wondered that, we can ask Isaiah. Isaiah is afraid here. In verse 5, he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. His response is, Woe is me, I am ruined. Now, I felt this way before. Um, Socially, I felt I was ruined. Uh, In the eighth grade, mind you, when I very much allowed for everyone to hear, called my teacher mom, it was mortifying, but I took comfort in the fact that at least one day I'll go to heaven and leave the woes of earth behind. (laughs) How much greater must it be to encounter ultimate reality? the eternal one, king of the universe. Isaiah knew that he deserved only death as a sinner. You know, C.S. Lewis once said of encountering holiness that it doesn't feel dull. It's irresistible. Think about that. When you encounter holiness, it's not dull. It's irresistible. It's not boring. It's attractive. God is like a great magnet pulling us closer, yet the closer we get, the more... In ourselves, we realize that we don't belong. You know, sometimes the Old Testament foreshadows the new, and we see this in what happens next. One of the seraphim approaches Isaiah. He brings a burning coal from the altar to Isaiah's unclean lips. The angel says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah is cleansed purified, and therefore stands before God. This cleansing points to Jesus' atonement. In fact, the whole sacrificial system points to Jesus' atonement. Early church fathers said that this encounter was a type of Christ. 
sin is atoned for by something, for, by someone, and it's not by this angel, and it's not by this coal. I mean, sin, sin doesn't simply disappear when you apply heat. God himself bears this sin. David recognized this in the psalm when he said, Against you alone, O Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So it, it's a little bit like the paraplegic that Jesus forgives in the gospel. Before his death on the cross, forgiveness of sin has always been based on Jesus' death on the cross. And its benefits are just being applied retroactively. Or is that the right word? Yeah. Um, someone put it this way once. The only remedy for a terrifyingly holy presence of God is the unearned cleansing presence of God. The only remedy for the presence of God is the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? Finally, in, in Isaiah's encounter with God, there is a commissioning. God himself, and not his angels, says, say this in verse 8. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? God asks, and Isaiah responds. Now, if you've ever wondered what a prophet is, I mean, here's the template for what a prophet is. It's one sent by God to speak for God to the people of God. Prophets are the mouthpiece of God. Sometimes they're called covenant enforcement mediators, lawyers, people that are sent with the task of preaching. Prophets name obediences and disobediences, mostly the latter, mostly disobediences, and they warn of blessings and curses. I mean, that's what they do. It's, it's, an, it's not usually on an individual basis, but on the level of nation. Prophets don't normally see into the future, but they know the terms of the covenant and say it like it is. That's what prophets do. In Isaiah's encounter with God, the progression, the movements, they feel a lot like going to church, don't they? I wonder if you've noticed that when you look at our Sunday morning worship service, in the, in the liturgy, it's actually because our liturgy is designed around this model of encounter. So just like that encounter with Isaiah, God calls us into worship. We confess our sins to God, and we hear an assurance of pardon. God feeds us with his word and equips us for ministry and sends us out into the world. I mean, that is the template that we use week after week, and it's based on Passages like this, of encounter. Now, in terms of the message of Isaiah, when you read through the first five chapters of Isaiah, at the root of Judah's crimes against God are the, the rejection of God, the rejection of his word. They turn away from God. They refuse to trust the Lord. They refuse to recognize his care. They're guilty of going through the motions, worshiping through empty ceremony, all while trusting everything except God. They worshipped idols. They made things with their own hands to worship. They also worshipped other gods, the gods of the Canaanites. They trusted human strength. They employed sorcerers and mediums, other signs they didn't trust God. Um, they committed murder, acts of violence. They embraced pride. They stroked their own egos and glorified, uh, gloried in their accomplishments. They took bribes and payoffs. They oppressed others. They reveled in drunkenness. And they also lived in fear of people, allying themselves with the nations to the north and to the south. It's a long list of things. Um, but at heart, they turned away from God. 
And in the words of God here, they fattened their hearts and they got sleepy. And because of all this, God's judgment was coming. And that was bad news for Israel. In verse 11, we read that cities will lie in ruin without inhabitants. Houses will be left deserted and fields, fields ruined and ravaged. I mean, can you imagine feeling like Isaiah did, um, like no matter what you did, nothing was going to change? I mean, in the healthcare system, I have seen such a dip in morale over the past two years. Many of you know that during the week I work in the ER as a crisis clinician. ERs treat a continuous influx of patients. As soon as one person is patched up and sent home, another person comes to take his place. The cyclical nature of the work can be demoralizing. ER staff know the feeling, like no matter what you do, there's a revolving door of emergencies. And add to it, hospital staff have literally been through a pandemic that they couldn't fix. I know from a mental health perspective, it's tiring to give moral support when you're experiencing the same stressors as the people you're supporting are. Compassion fatigue is real. If ER clinicians feel it, Isaiah felt it. Being sent with a message to let Israel fatten themselves up and let them go to sleep, otherwise they might actually be healed. It's only ironically amusing until people start ignoring your message and becoming spiritually complacent. I mean, that's the bad news. Because of Israel's sin, there will be an exile. So where's the good news? After foretelling uh, of Israel's exile, in verses uh, 12 and 13, it goes a little like this, though a tenth remain in the land, it will be laid waste. God provides a glimmer of hope, a hope for the faithful. In verse 13, at the end, we read this. But as the, the, the terebinth and oak, these two trees, leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. It's a picture, but it's saying the great oak, this big tree, had to become a stump so that a shoot could come up out of it. I mean, don't you just see Jesus bounding out of this image here? Jesus, the root, of Dave, uh, the root of Jesse, from the seed of Abraham, the plant of God that's been, that, that God's been faithful to and will be faithful to. And this is how God is faithful to it. God's promised to grow this plant. And Jesus is this, this, this glimmer of hope springing out of this passage. It's just this little thread at the end, showing God's people that he hasn't abandoned them. You know, before moving on to apply this word, let me say that listening, uh, that, that, that our series is about listening to the prophets. And it, it's, it's a thought experiment, right? Um, so in their day, prophets were ignored. They were even hated for their words. But what would happen instead uh, in our day if we listened to them? If we didn't just pass by as they cried out? What if we stopped and allowed their words to challenge us and change us? What if we heard the exasperated irony of God who tells his people to fatten their hearts and get themselves ready for bed and heard in it a call to repentance? Awake, O sleeper. God says, you come only to me to fill those parts of your life you can't fill yourself. You're just coming for me, to me for self-gain. Marv Wilson, one of the... Um, 
retired faculty at Gordon has a phrase which he uses as a warning. He, he calls it quid pro quo religion. Quid pro quo religion is easy to fall into. Quid pro quo, quo uh, is a Latin phrase which means this for that. So quid pro quo religion, and I'll pronounce it right one day, sees our worship as an exchange. Our service, what we give to God is a trade-off. Exchange is what the Canaanite religion was all about. And maybe that's why it was so attractive to the ancient Israelites. We like easy math. You sacrifice this, you gain that benefit, maybe fertility, longevity, good health, abundance of possessions, livestock, a good harvest. You sacrifice your Sunday morning for whatever it might be. You give in order to get. What you put in is what you're entitled to get out. You know, Lenten practices, in complete contrast to that, are not things we do to get something in return. I'm going to say that again. Lent is not about what you get in return. I didn't grow up in a church that practiced Lent, so some of this is new for me. But I wonder if fasting accompanies Lent because it's a practice that creates space for God. I mean, are we a, I wonder if we're people that know what spiritual poverty outside of God feels like. During Lent, our call is to stare long and hard at the cross. The cross is the remedy for spiritual fatness. <laughs> Just like Isaiah was in the temple, we are in the presence of the glory of God, and we can only fall on our faces and say, woe is me, apart from Christ. At the cross, we recognize the love of God for us. And we recognize the extent of God's love for us. I mean, God would go that far for you, for me? God would go that far? In Lent, we strip down the distractions of our faith, not to gain something, but because God is worthy of our worship. I want to say that again. During Lent, we strip down the distractions of our faith, not to get something, but because God is worthy of our worship. His love and grace are enough. God owes us nothing, but gives us himself anyway. I mean, what an amazing gift. How can we be complacent in this shaking temple? I mean, what do we know of holy? My message for us today is, church, let's not rush too quickly to Easter Sunday, but let's dwell long and hard at this cross. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you that out of the stump grew a shoot that we can put our hope and our faith in. We thank you that you call us not into a faith of complacency, um, but you call us to encounter you, the living God, who created this world, who loved us so much to go to a cross for us. We sin, and you want us. You want our relationship anyway. I pray that we would 
dwell long and hard on that. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.